Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and this is uh, this is a, a another of my podcasts. We'll, we'll be looking at right-wing extremism, extremism more generally. But I've got the privilege of being in, joined by somebody who spent, her, I guess, a bit more time looking at the kind of underworld we talk about when we talk about extremist groups. Um, it, um, it's a privilege to be joined by Cam Smith, who's the host of the 3CR program called Yenar Pasaran, which uh, rips apart various issues to do with extremism domestically and overseas. And he's got some other, uh, other various uh, projects he's involved in, which we'll cover off towards the end when we look at where you can get more of Cam if you enjoy this, right? Cam, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, it, look, we when we open a can of worms of right-wing extremism and, and extremism generally, there's a whole uh, raft of uh, material that we could talk about and look at. Um, why don't we just start with a very simple question, and that is when did you first start getting interested in um, uh, groups that sit on the outside? Uh, it would have been about 2004, I think. Uh, so there was a group called the Patriotic Youth League in Sydney. Well, I guess they were all over Australia, but uh, they were the youth branch of the Australia First Party. And they started okay. postering uh, around Sydney uh, things about, you know, foreign students are taking Aussie places or, you know, foreigners are taking our water. And a friend of mine set up a little campaign, got some little old ladies out with the, the paint scrapers to take these posters down. And we also thought, looking at their website, they were pretty silly sausages. And we thought, we can do a better job than this. So we made our own parody version of their website. <coughs> and I, I wrote that as a, you know, a young 18 or something year old. And it was all just a, a bit of fun, but uh, we started getting death threats. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get a death threat for, you know, just taking the mickey, might as well actually do something useful. So we started to really look into them and we discovered that although they were saying, you know, we're, we're just patriots or we're just nationalists, in fact, there was this core of neo-Nazis in the group and uh, it all sort of went from there. Right, so it was kind of a, um, an exploration of... of, of uh, what was back then an antipathy and resistance type group? Yeah, they they were trying to be, I guess, uh, framed more along the lines of Casa Pound in Italy, if you're familiar with them, which is something that, uh, for example, the National Socialist Network seems to be returning to. But they they wanted to have this sort of youth culture based uh, nationalist movement, but behind closed doors, they were very much about. You know, Mr. Hitler and how much they liked him. Um, yeah, it seems to be. It seems to be the way in which um, people draw uh, draw people into that ideology, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a bit of physical activity to run around, do stickers, or do whatever. But and it seems a bit of fun. But ultimately, the underlying, the, the chassis of it all, is an ideology that is quite harmful 
in a multicultural society. Yeah, uh, it's the politics of genocide, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. But yeah, the, the post-string and the stickering does come up a lot. I think because it's a good way, it's a good low-risk activity to see how committed someone is. I think that's why they always come back to that. Um, but there's also something else that happens with stickering and post-string and that stuff that isn't there. Because if you've got, for example... Uh, posters around a university and that university has a cohort of international students it makes people feel unwanted mm. discriminated against uh, makes them feel victimized um, and rightly so but it then starts to have another effect in terms of feedback back home to where these people come from, and that is Australia is not a nice country. There's a whole bunch of racists here. I think that was partly the intention as well, and I, I vaguely recall that at one point there was some sort of report came out that said, actually, you know, international students coming to Australia, the numbers are going down, and they claimed that as a victory. You know, we've been out there putting up these posters. Uh, there, there were some assaults uh at around that same time on international students in Newcastle and places like that. And that was all sort of put together as, you know, this is our campaign and it's worked. So you, you did this stuff up in Sydney. And when did you when did you drift down south to Mexico? Well, I, w- I was just down here already. I, it was just that my friend was up in Sydney and that's where the, the posters were going up. But, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but it... From there, you've started doing – when did you start doing community radio? Uh, that would have been about 11 years ago. So we started a group called Fight Them Back, which was a, an anti-racist sort of monitoring project. Uh, it was trans-Tasman because we noticed that a lot of uh, our guys over here were hooking up with people in New Zealand. And so we thought, all right, maybe we should be hooking up with anti-racist activists in New Zealand as well sort of pooling resources. And, yeah, I, th- I was just came in for an interview at 3CR one day and then they asked me, uh, do you want to host a, a show? And it, it went from there, obviously. Now, mm. look, there's – we can go any direction with, with, uh, with this um, uh, discussion, but I think it, uh, – <laughs> We've got a parliamentary committee looking at extremism and radicalisation. Um, and one of the things that caused this uh, sort of focus by the parliament and others was the, or has, has put pressure on people to consider it more, obviously, was um, what happened on the 15th of March in 2019 uh, in Christchurch. Mm. How, pivotal, how pivotal do you think the Christchurch killings were in, in getting people more aware about the, the threat of the right-wing ideology? I've, I don't think there's been anything as important as that event in terms of getting attention on this issue. Uh on the 14th of March, 2019, you couldn't find anyone that would that thought this was a problem, really. Uh, they were fairly thin on the ground. It's um, it's definitely turned around since then, unfortunately. But 
it's good that people are paying attention, just not so great the way that it happened. The and one of the things Christina clearly has said in public is that we haven't um, reckoned with the fact that and ind that individuals get radicalised here. Hmm. Uh, would you agree with that and why? Yeah, I think that there hasn't really been any sort of reckoning in Australia over the fact that this was an Australian. He learnt uh, about the world here. Uh, obviously, he had his travels, but you know his formative years were all in, in Australia. And I think that there's a reluctance to think too much about this, particularly, you know, within the political and media classes, because you'd have to examine your own culpability. This is someone who's, who grew up in, you know, the uh, Civ X era, uh, grew up with, you know, Sunrise and Today Tonight and The Current Affair and all of these things. Uh, and there's some responsibility there for how his views have formed that I don't think anyone wants to take. Can, can, can I ask what might be a blunt question? Is it difficult for us to deal with it because the individuals that engage typically in right-wing ideology look like us? They're white. Hmm. Is that it? Yeah, it's I think it's so ingrained that terrorism is something that is committed by the other that when it's committed by someone who you know who looks like us, it's uh, it is a bit jarring. I think that's correct. Yeah, because I can't I can't find any other re any other reason for a reluctance to grapple with it, other than the fact that it forces people to um, confront the reality that terrorism as a tactic. Is in at least in my view, is ideologically agnostic, is racially agnostic, is um, you know, creed agnostic or religiously agnostic. It's a tactic, and anybody can do it if they're so minded, right? Um, and the thing that I find staggering is. We spent so much time over two decades. Kick me in the teeth if you think I'm wrong here, by the way. But um, we spent so much time over two decades worrying about bin Laden and uh, Abu Musab al Zarqawi and, um, you know, Al Qaeda and uh, Islamic State that we lost sight of things that happen in our backyard. Hmm. I think all of the funding, all of the terrorism funding was going in that one direction. Uh, all of the, you know, you were telling me just before that you've been studying terrorism. I think all of the scholarship on this issue has been pretty much one way with a very few exceptions. And when I talk to people in, the, I guess, the CVE, the Countering Violent Extremism Industry, they all say to me there's this huge debt from the last 20 years of everything being entirely focused on Islamism that uh, people are still not quite getting over as they try and grapple with these other issues. So everything was just going one way and this stuff's just been bubbling away the entire time. We've also had admissions from law enforcement 
domestically and in New Zealand, for example, that they've spent a lot more time um, looking at you know, Islamism or global jihadism, uh, which is a term that I tend to prefer. Um, in part, uh, I'll blame Quentin Viktorovich for that. Quentin Viktorovich has written some excellent, excellent work in the area. Mm. Um, there's a brilliant paper. I don't know whether you've come across it, uh, looking at the anatomy of Salafism, and he offers a three um, a three tier uh, view of Salafism. You know, sort of the scholarly types who read and proselytize and what. Islam is. Uh, then you've got the political types who are wanting to change the system within a system. Then you've got the global jihadists who just want to blow stuff up because they don't think you can do it through the through the political mechanism that exists. Mm. But um, that's where we focused. What do you think of the pivot that we're we've made now? How do you you've observed the area quite? Uh, extensively, how do you view the pivot? I think, I think a lot of people have pivoted. I uh, don't know if everyone's quite <laughs> ready. I think that there are some, maybe some things that they need to consider about a you know, it's it's been a racialized field maybe, and it seems to me like some people still have a bit of a hangover that they need to pop an Alka Seltzer to get over, perhaps. But uh, in, gen in, ge in general, there seems to be a bit of a hangover. Uh, so one pivot that I think of when I think about this is, you know, we recently saw a current affair going fairly hard on Tom Sewell and the National Socialist Network. Yeah. Now, the last time that Tom Sewell was on a current affair was a just a few years ago when they did a puff piece on his racist vigilante gang. And in the meantime, there's been no acknowledgement of the fact that, that, you know, that was probably not the right thing to do. That That's what I'm sort of talking about when I talk about that there hasn't been a reckoning. Uh, so some people have pivoted, but they haven't quite made up for the fact that uh, not everything they did before was that great. The issue of the current repair coverage, uh, I've written about in Crikey. I don't know whether you saw the piece. Mm. Um and I wrote about the fact that, you know, a certain individual's Telegram account jumped literally within a week. You're talking about 3,000 um, subscribers. Um, in fact, more than 3,000, if I remember the numbers correctly. But it didn't need to be, didn't need to grow that quickly, though, Cam. No. Um, because... Well, I mean, obviously, if they didn't cover them, there would be no basis for that rapid growth. But there's something else that gives me the irrits uh, about that, and that is this. If you recall the first story and the, the, the drama that led up to the thing going to where, that happened because a current affair didn't interview civil in any way, shape, or form. They did it for night two, right? You see, the thing the thing that would be fascinating to contemplate is 
if they interviewed Sewell for the first thing, the first segment, and they judiciously ran a portion of that interview that explained why they do what they do and the critics and the analysts following or whatever. I'm not sure that you would have had that level of escalation because there would be no grounds for a scuffle. There would be no grounds for story number two. No. Am I right? Or no, I think I think you're right. I mean, I also I don't think that the original story was uh, that necessary in the first place. Uh, there's no shortage of material out there about how to responsibly cover groups like this, and I don't think that that first one, besides the fact that they didn't uh, air him hit any of those metrics in any way, shape, or form. Well, um, the, the reason I touch on that is because I've had this discussion with uh, younger journalism colleagues, right? And the discussion goes like this. Uh, we, we shouldn't platform certain people because of the ideas or whatever they proselytise. Um, and I, I, pull them, I, I pull the discussion back a bit. I say, look, I agree with you when it comes to 45 minutes of Steve Banner. Okay? Um, 45 minutes of Steve Bannon is actually disproportionate to the man's relevance to Australia, obviously referring to Four Corners. Hmm. But Steve Bannon and academics and politicians and others that deal with the particular brand of politics that Bannon is responsible for advocating is something different. So you've got to find that medium, but it's very difficult to find in an environment where if you uh, if you go on Facebook uh, or, or on Twitter, rather, and you find that somebody's abusing you, you block them, right, or you mute them. They're still there, but you can't see them. You've sanitised your feed. Mm. Um, but a lot, life doesn't work that way. Because out, outside of your technological sanitization process, there's a real world. And that real world, uh, look, uh, the perfect analogy is a rose garden, right? Mm. And that real world has got thorns up the stem. You can't just, you, know, you can't just block the thorns and just look at the petals and say how great the world is. <laughs> but at the same time, that analogy might catch on, huh? Um, but but at the same time, you cannot give disproportionate emphasis to uh, to an individual or a group because that then um, makes them appear to be bigger or more relevant or or whatever. Um, uh, in other words, it's not responsible coverage if you give disproportionate emphasis to people. No. Um, in the same way as it's irresponsible for people to say Antifa was responsible for January 6, uh, which are, which some commentators here insist upon, when um, you know, we're talking about one bloke, I think his surname's Sullivan, who happens yes. to be a provocateur who likes 
taking videos and all that sort of stuff. Um, I don't think he is the entirety of any movement called Antifa. Uh, so that disproportionate emphasis on Sullivan actually makes things rather, um, you know, uh, well, it's, it doesn't do credit for the person that's done it, but also uh, creates an impression that you have no Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys, or QAnon kooks present on the day. Exactly. You know, you can't operate in a world like that. It's just ridiculous. So we get that from um, some people on a cable channel. Uh, we get, you know, on, on other fronts we get, you can't platform X, Y, and Z. Uh, no, you can you can cover things responsibly. And that I think, that I think is a problem. Um, is there anything I've said you disagree with? No, I think that's all fair. I, just in terms of platforming, I mean, th there was another piece recently that quoted Sewell quite extensively that I think got a few people a bit hot under the collar, which I thought was actually fair enough. Uh, you need to know what these people are saying. The difference between, say, that I think it was Michael McGowan in The Guardian wrote this piece. Yeah. Uh, the difference between that and The Current Affair is that a, The Current Affair piece is like an advertisement <laughs> for this this group they you know they might be saying that they're bad but they're making them look cool uh which is a pretty good effort considering that tom saw as a person is fairly lame um yeah look i think you know it, television relies on pictures pictures tend to be flash yeah um i think that's just the way it is uh, but if you step back and you, it, I, I've read McGowan's stuff. Um, those pieces are generally well considered. Um, I think some of the stuff we're seeing on the base from other people uh, is interesting. Mm. But there's, it comes with the qualification though, Cam. And the qualification is this. The recruitment mechanism is the same. Yes. No matter what avatar they use, uh, no matter what, you know, um, industrial metal music they use underneath the the, the video clip or whatever, um, the me recruitment mechanism is the same. Um, there are proton, you know, proton mail accounts by the dozen. Um and they generally look for the same things. Yeah, so when we focus on it, we kind of also need to remember that um, the product, I guess the product can be described as generic mm. with a different label on it. Is that fair? Well, I mean, it's a, the same product that people have been shopping around for a about 100 years now, just <laughs> changing the name. Um, yeah, just stopping, stopping another stopping another title on the on the thing. But, yes, you, you're absolutely right. Um, your observations um, on your Twitter account are often fascinating, um, which leads me to the next question. 
what sort of response do you get to, to some of your stuff? Because from time to time, you uh, you seem to attract the occasional critic. I do. I think I usually get criticised when someone mistakes me for a, perhaps the person in the video that I've posted. That would be the the majority of the criticism. Uh, every now and then, someone asks me why I'm bothering to focus on this stuff, and I. I don't know. I think that the the past year has sort of proved uh, the value of that, though. Yeah, I think um, there are those who might say you've got an interesting hobby. Um, But the importance of what you do is, is you shine a light on... um, the danger of certain kinds of absurdity, mm. right? Uh, it's a bit like going shopping in Bunnings without a mask during a pandemic and saying, I don't have to follow laws because laws are set by corporations. Are these things not laws? They're, uh, they're rules set by corporations and we don't need to follow corporation-type stuff. Um and that's you, Karen, from Bunnings' example, mm. um, which goes all the way to the others who occupied, and you would have seen this, sort of hung out in the Victorian um, lockdown protest groups. Mm. And all of a sudden you start to see curious talk that looks like it belongs in the Turner Diaries. Yes. Right? And I'm like, hold on. Um, is this a protest for freedom and democracy and getting rid of the lockdown, or is this a a group that some people are using to transition people into thinking about um, violent insurrection? Yeah, <laughs> it's a. Very strange little world there. And right from the very beginning of the pandemic, when I first started looking at this, I was just always taken aback by some of the violent ideas that were not even that hidden, that were right on the surface. I remember looking at like one, not even on Telegram, not even in any sort of encrypted chat or anything, which is, you know, I guess the the constant refrain in any of these articles, so-and-so said this in an encrypted chat, just out on the open web, people talking about, oh, we need to burn down 5G towers. And you'd look at their profiles and they were just ordinary mums and dads having these conversations. And then they'd go back to, you know, talking about their next Zoom yoga class. Yeah, it kind of staggers you, doesn't it? Um... I mean, you you then go into the encrypted world, um, and then you see, you know, the I mean, the, the stuff that was fed to people. Mm. Um, even even to the extent that when you go into some of the some of the groups, and you find that somebody's posted a document on the Illuminati, and I'm thinking, what the hell? Um, what have the Illumin- what has the Illuminati got to do with you know Brett Sutton's medical orders? Well, it's got everything to do with it, of course. Oh, well, 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get you to try and explain that because we'll both uh, both you know sort of laugh our heads off. But um, but you, all of that converges into this this feed, and some of it's recognisable from literature, some of it's not. But it somehow people have made it about stuff that it. it it initially wasn't supposed to be about, mm. which is interesting. It, it's sort of uh, far-right ideology hijacking what um, some people genuinely believe to be a um, a peaceful kind of cause. Uh, I think it's there was the, definitely a very deliberate attempt to do that as well. Uh, when I was looking at some of these Telegram channels in the beginning, uh, it was sometimes really obvious that someone had set out to say, all right, I can peel these people off into my own group. Uh, we can grow our far movement from these people who have disengaged sort of the mainstream politic and are open to a lot of different sort of ideas and are not prepared to be able to push back on things like anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to cover off with you, and it's quite interesting, and, and you've raised an interesting point, and I've covered it up elsewhere with, with um, Senator Christina Keneally in, a, in another podcast, which people can plug into, but I'd like your perspective on it. And that is it, our security agencies and law enforcement agencies tell us that there's an increasing number of young people that join or start to dabble with uh, joining certain extreme groups. Um, I tend to think, and I'm open to be corrected, um, that part of this is a failure of our education system and our society to properly prepare people for some of the ugliness that they're likely to confront and do so early enough so they can be inoculated uh, or at least asked the right questions when they're confronted with stuff that looks really weird. Am I am I down to, am I going on the right track? I think I think you are, but I, it's it's a bit of a strange run. I, Society hasn't caught up with technology. There's definitely a technological element to what they're talking about, this the radicalisation of youth and this sort of fast-track radicalisation as well that we see, where in the past we really had to go and search this stuff out and probably in terms of inoculating against these ideas, we've been, you know, up to speed. Now you can log on and algorithms and <laughs> machine learning decides that you become a terrorist and pushes it on you and when it, we weren't ready for that but how do we do how do we develop um our programs to help people get over this sort of hurdle cam i mean I, what are the things you, you you've looked at the area for many years what are the elements that you think need to be incorporated into, uh, say, an educational curriculum? 
<laughs> I think part of the problem is that it's not, you can't just say we can fix this with a, a, an, an extra class in RE. Uh, <laughs> there's yeah. huge sort of machines at work, uh, some figurative, that all combine to push this. We, we really call shift to deal with this. I understand that that's sort of a big <laughs> thing to propose I yeah. mean in terms of just the basics uh, helping kids understand when they're being manipulated and when people are trying to manipulate them into thinking someone else is <laughs> trying to manipulate them I guess I, something I see all the time with uh, the conspiracy people who are being worked by these far right people is that they use all of this language that we're familiar with from studying extremism, things like red-pilling, uh, where the far-right extremists have gone out to pill the conspiracy people into far-right extremism. The conspiracy people, they know about the red pill because they've seen some tricks meme on their Facebook wall. So they say, yeah, I'm taking the red pill. They're using language to describe what's happening to them as it is happening, but they don't understand what's happening. They don't understand that someone has set out to manipulate them into thinking things a certain way, even as what they think they're doing is stopping some Illuminati from making them think that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're talking, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm sort of thinking about elements. We've got you know, critical thinking, the need to be able to work your way through propaganda, need to be able to ask the right questions. Um, an extent to comparative religion. You know what? What? What are the? What are the similarities and differences between certain faiths? Um, things that encourage people to reflect on and compare, right? Um, might be might be of some use. Um, then you get the older generation, obviously. Well, yeah, you're probably a little bit younger than I am. I think um, I'm an old fart at the age of forty nine. But you um, uh, you get to the point where you know, the media's got a responsibility mm. to break things up. Um, to educate, to um, to say that, uh, and we're poor at this, by the way, and uh, to to stop using blanket terms like um, radical Islam and moderate Islam. Unless you've studied it, you've got no idea what the difference is between moderate and radical, right? If you're out there and, and you're a, you've grown up in a, in a Roman Catholic household, for example, um, and you've had no exposure to Islam whatsoever, mm. somebody on television, maybe on a channel some of us know and love, uh, pops up and says, um, if you don't know the difference between radical Islam and moderate Islam, then you're part of the problem, without defining what radical Islam is, then that very phrase causes people to roll their eyes and go, well, what the hell is he talking about? Hmm. 
what can the media do better? I mean, I've, you've obviously given an example, but you've watched a lot of stuff, read a lot of stuff. What can the media do better, Cam? They, they need to think about what they're doing when they cover these groups and movements. They need to think about what they're trying to achieve and whether if what they're trying to achieve is worth giving them publicity. They need to take into account the fact that, you know, a certain proportion of the people watching are going to, even if what they're presenting is you know, horrible, uh, a certain proportion of the people are going to say, well, you know, they might have some good ideas. So they need to think about these things. There's, I mean, there's a whole thing. You could, you could say quite a lot about how the Australian media has a tendency to racialize and otherize issues. Uh, the Australian media... <laughs> There's plenty of room for improvement. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, your comment on, um, I'll use the phrase again, you're probably sick of it by now, but, you know, there's a, creating a disproportionate view of a race or giving giving disproportionate emphasis to characteristics is something that uh, we need to be careful of um, uh, going forward. Now I know I know we're sort of I'm looking at looking at the time and I'm uh, very conscious of uh, of the fact that uh, you've been generous uh, with your time tonight. Um, you do a lot of stuff uh, on radio and elsewhere. Uh, would you mind telling people where they can find you? Yes, you can find me on 3CR on Thursdays from 4.30pm until 5 with Yana Passaran, which is a radio show I do with Andy Fleming or Slackbastard. And you can also find a podcast of that all around the place. And I also do a podcast about conspiracy theories called The Hypothetical Institute, which uh, you can find also all over the internet. Uh, do you do any, any, any writing or is it just um, mainly... Uh, the radio thing. I do write a little bit occasionally when I'm forced to. Uh, I used to write a bit for Crikey uh, about this sort of stuff about 10 years ago. And I remember someone telling me once, oh, I don't think you'll be able to make a beat out of uh, conspiracy theories. And thank you to the coronavirus for proving them wrong. <laughs> 10, 15 years later. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm doing some stuff for Crikey at the moment on on, on the space, and um, it's the, the actual. Um, there's a there's a greater understanding of its importance, mm. uh, which is good, but there's also an awareness that you don't want to be giving people too much. Um, you don't want to over publicise. Um, some of the radicals out there. Yeah. Uh, so, you're going to give more rope than air. Well, yeah, there's that. Um, but then that's where it's at. Look, uh, Cam, it's been great having you on the podcast. Uh, it, and uh, I hope people check out your other two podcasts and sort of hope to see you in written form because you've got a lot to offer. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And I look forward to... Do we get again sometime? For sure.